Put down your paintbrush. It's time for Hobby Support Group. Morning, Andy. Morning, Tom. How are you today? Uh, I am belurgied up, so apologies, listener, if I sound like I'm recording through a potato or something. I've got a stinking cold. Ah, uh, yes, you, uh, you, you've got what I had, probably, Tom. Well, a little while ago. Yeah, praise Nurgle. Praise Nurgle, indeed. We've got a good show, I think, haven't we, Tom? What we've got happening this this episode? Well, we've got all, all our usual features, you know, hobby progress, hobby purchases, hobby news. We've a listener question about paint. Then we're having a. Oh, when she talk about paint for longer than you would expect. <laughs> Much longer. We have a, a main segment looking at how do you choose what games you play when you might have like quite a large collection of games. Like how do you whittle yeah. it down to sort of what am I playing in this period of time? And then we might also have a chat about a tournament that we went to the other day. And we'll, that will be more a chat rough, quickly about our games and what we thought, because in a future episode, we're going to have a segment with the tournament organiser where we sit down and chat about running that. Absolutely fantastic. Well, let's get started, Tom. Hobby progress. So what have you been up to in the last two weeks, hobby-wise, Andy? Oh, just more uh, of the England match and William's birthday. I've been kind of busy. Um, but I know you've got you had quite a big... Um, Big news on your side, so you it spurred me on to get uh, a Blood Bowl team painted. I finished my um, necromantic team last night before we recorded, so I'd have something to show for it. They look really cool. Thank you very much. It was done with contrast paints, it was nice and quick. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy they turned out. Um, I've not played much Blood Bowl, I've played one game and now I have four teams for it. <laughs> As you I, do. I, I, I really enjoy I really enjoy the models. All the models for Blood Bowl are so good, so characterful, um, and I just really like really like the look of them. The Necromantic team, so I just uh, picked them up uh, and I finally finished them. So that's a a tick off on my overall list. All the Blood Bowl stuff I had is finished now. It's another block done. Um, had I painted my stuff for um, Rain of Hell last time we spoke? Yeah, she'd painted up the Beastman from Ed. Oh yeah. That was last episode. So that that's all I've done since then. So not very much at all. Not my usual um, flurry of activity. But um, yeah, that's that's one done. One off the over list. And uh, you, Tom, what, what have you done? I know you got some some big news. Well, I've I'm on the cusp of having finished three projects. I've f- finished bar varnishing the late war island defense Japanese. I finished completely the Sino-Japanese War Japanese, and all I have left to do is varnish and put the flags on the six mil British at Waterloo Army, which I sort of finished off painting the last couple of weeks. I know I said on an episode a while ago that I thought I had maybe like two or three days left painting on that army. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it took me two weeks. Um, I spent yesterday afternoon uh, just painting the black rims on the bases, and that took me... I didn't get it finished. There are a lot of bases on that army. <laughs> yeah. Really looking forward to playing it, and I'm also sort of really... So, because it's a black powder army, 
so it's all in different brigades. I'm sure quite pleased that brigades play really quickly and get rid of uh, brigades quite quick because it's 16 different brigades. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of officers. And yes. after I... So just to clarify for our listeners at home, because I always, I always get battalions and brigades muddled up. Is like one unit, is that a brigade or is that a battalion? I get, I get confused between the two. A battalion's a unit and yeah. a brigade is a collection of units. So you have you have 16 brigades? Yes. Um, how many, is it three per? It varies. Some of them are, most of them are three units, two to three units of line infantry mm-hmm. and then a unit of light infantry. Yeah. That was, or some of them might be like, Three units of line infantry and a unit of Highlanders or rifles. Yeah. That sort of thing. Because you can have a maximum of like three. You have to have a minimum of two and a maximum of four units of foot in the black powder rules. Yep. And the same with guns and that sort of a thing. Like guns are like two to four. So like, you know, if you've got a dozen cannon, you know, you're looking at at least three brigades for those. I better get off my uh, get off my um, behind and get my stuff done. Then I've finished finished those um, the Blood Bowl team. I guess it's just have to get on with um, my Prussians. Then you know the famous Prussians versus British battle. Well, after I'd finished painting them all, I ended up having to rebase the officers because all right. it's so all the units are on the like line infantry units and the like all the normal units are on sixty by thirty bases. Yep. And the small units and the cannons and that are on 30 by 30s. Yeah. And I, I'd put my officers on 30s by 30s as well. But yep. when I'd finished it all, it didn't quite fit in two trays. There was... Right. I, I needed like one extra row. I needed like literally about a centimetre to put the extra row of officers in. Mm-hmm. So I just put all the officers on 20 mil square bases instead. Right. And, you know, like technically, I'm now done myself out of a centimetre of bubble room for giving their office orders. <sighs> but they fit in the tray. And I didn't yeah. want them to, like, obviously didn't want to have three trays, nor did I want them to sort of be stood on top of each other. Mm-hmm. So I shall live with it. Yeah. And that's my hobby progress. So. Well, that's very good, Tom. That's very good. Now I've got to get to grips with cutting out and gluing six mil scale flags on everything. And then... oh, I did. Yeah, they're not so bad. I did. Uh, I've done some of the Prussian ones already. I've done some. I did all my Prussian line infantry and then glued the flags on. You, you'll be fine. I'm looking for. I'm really looking forward to seeing what they all look like finished, and then seeing what they all look like set on a table on a mat. Oh yeah, yeah. Now I'm looking forward to getting mine done too. Now. Hobby purchases. This last fortnight's hobby purchases, I have bought nothing. Ah, a, a, a fantastic uh, episode for you, Tom. Another, another duck's egg, zero spent. How about yourself? Well, obviously, I have not spent nothing because that's what always happens. Um, I saw a really good deal online for. Dice from Dyson Dex, I think was the company's name, and they were selling Portuguese line infantry for eleven pounds. 
They're normally £20 from, um, from Warlord Games. Now selling theirs for £11. Now, I already had a couple of boxes um, I bought previously. So I just bought, I would ordered four boxes. Um, and that's going to be because we're doing the Polyonics next year in 28 mil. I know I'm going to need them. And I figured it's pretty much 50% off. I'm not going to see that uh, a deal that good um, anytime again soon. Um, so just get the, the units I need now. So that'll give me uh, two brigades of three units of line infantry. I have six boxes. So I ordered four boxes and it was just shy, like six pounds shy, 50 pounds for the free postage. So I bought some card sleeves just to top me up to 50 pounds to get the free postage. So I spent 50 pounds, but I don't feel too bad because that's for next year's big project. I was going to spend that money at some point anyway. And now that's all my land infantry covered for next year. Yeah, that will be what well over a hundred line infantry, won't it? So uh, six times twenty-four, which is what's that? Twenty. Twenty. Hundred and forty-four. Sounds wrong, but somewhere around there. Somewhere around there. So that's that's not a bad. I think sometimes I we've, we've talked about you know taking advantage of a deal if it's a really good deal. Or, yep. or like you know, not taking advantage of every deal just because it's a deal, but that really is a sort of deal in a way you can't afford to miss up. Yeah, it? yeah, and that's I can expand from that because I've gone for Portuguese. I can get Peninsula British to go with them as well if I want to do a British army to fight alongside. It's a good way to build out from there as well. So I, mean, I could start with British and and built in Portuguese, but for some reason. Um, I went for Portuguese. Maybe I'm a Ronaldo fan. I don't know. <laughs> I thought I'd go for Portuguese. I like, I like, uh, I like Nando's or something. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to painting those next year. But they've, they've literally just gone in the cupboard. They've been put away, bought, put away, ready for next year from we start thinking about Napoleonics. That's the benefit, though, of like being part of a gaming group where we plan things ahead, isn't it? Like we know oh, what yeah. we're playing next year. Mm-hmm. And like we've also been discussing like what size of games we're playing, so you yeah. you you know like really you've got slightly too much, too many yeah. for what we're yeah. planning on playing, but you know that you're not going to be running short, so you know you are now sorted. Yeah, but I might not take so much cavalry as you guys because the Portuguese didn't have much cavalry, so you know I might yeah. say right, okay, I'll have less cavalry and rely on my British allies to provide that in the games we play. Yeah, because the the plan is. As we've, you know, listeners might be a little bit surprised. You know, we've talked about never doing mass battle Napoleonics in 28 mil, and they're going, now they're doing 28 mil Napoleonics. <laughs> We're contrarians. It's fine. We can do what we like. We can change our minds. But the plan is that when we do mass battles, it's to be a collaborative project, isn't it? So it's going, they're going to be battles of coalitions. So it's exactly. not going to be, this is one person setting down their whole army. It's going to be, you know, three or four people per side. Which yeah. combined to make a decent army. Yeah, because we found of English Civil War that that certainly worked the best. You get the scale of game that you need for those pike and shot games by having several players aside. Yeah, because you know my English Civil War army is probably it's roughly about a hundred cavalry, two maybe maybe two hundred infantry, mm-hmm. um, and like I would never want to make another like a twenty-eight mil army that size again. Yeah, and even that when it's on its own on the table doesn't look that impressive. No, no. Um, yeah, I've got I've got one a similar sort of size of 
infantry and maybe less cavalry, more infantry than you. And it's just, yeah, it, you just to get a real size, a battle of, I think for a real fighting shot battle, you need lots of lots of dudes on the table. So you want a smaller scale or lots of players, I think, doing 28. Yeah, which is, you know, we, I think is a really good thing for us because it's then less dedication on time on painting it, less space to store stuff, less outlay in buying the figures. Because I don't think any of us were in a particularly happy place by the time we'd finished our English Civil War armies. We were all just like, I've got to get it done. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I was just, it, it became a bit of a slog. It was like, I'm just going to get, I'll do a unit here, do a unit here, and then just bit by bit get them painted up until eventually they were finished. And I was really glad I had them. And I, I kind of wish I spent a bit more time and detail doing the cuffs and things on them, but they're done and they are, they are fine as they are. Yeah, you know, they are a million times better than other people in our gaming group who haven't finished painting them yet. This is you, true. You know who you are. Yeah. <laughs> Grey plastic is not attractive. No. So is uh, that you done for hobby purchase for this month then? Yeah, I mean, I think I feel like 50,000 is enough to, <laughs> to start with. But uh, yeah, just, just to spend 50 pounds. Um, and, and again, I don't feel too bad because I know that's going to be, I was probably going to pick them up at Salute um, this year was my plan to see what deals people had for armies. But when you see that sort of 50% off price, you just have to just, um, I think, act and be sensible. Don't spend too much, but just get some stuff you know you're going to buy, you're going to need. And um, yeah, I'm lucky yeah. I could prepare that way. I think it's sometimes in a way, like I know I've been to Salute twice looking for a deal on a specific army that I in sort of quotes need for something. Yeah. And have been disappointed twice. Yeah. Like I didn't, they didn't quite have what they were like. I, last time I went to Salute, I wanted 10 mil uh, Vikings versus Anglo-Saxons yeah. in a deal. Could not get one. No one had them on offer. They were just normal price. Yeah. Um, and I wanted them for a Warmaster thing. Yeah. And then before that, I'd wanted some, I think it was like 28 mil scale Vikings. I wanted 28 yeah. mil scale Viking army for something. Couldn't get anything. The only thing I could get was some Dark Age cavalry, which kind yeah. of worked. Um, and again, sort of like, you know, I wish I just bought the models I needed beforehand. Yeah. Um, so I, I think you would say, I would say to not oh, keep stressing this point. If you see a really good deal, don't necessarily hold out for something further in the future. If you go, that's a really good deal now and you are planning on getting it and you can afford it, maybe get it. If it's in for something in the medium term, not thinking, oh, these Africa core sprues are only a pound each. I'm going to buy 50 of them because then I can do like a horde Africa core army in the future if I want to. Mm. Unless you've got like a bolted on project for them, I would avoid that. I think, yeah, it takes a little bit of experience to know what are the good deals that are going to be good. Like, know that, you know, basic units for an army are going to be good. And you're going to, you know, if you know you're going to be playing them later on. But, you know, if you're going to be buying, oh, well, I'll buy 100 Nebelwerfers, you know, you know, you're probably not going to need that many, you know. No. Um, 
and just you know uh, set yourself a limit don't spend too much either yeah yeah so don't, uh, don't save yourself a hundred pounds and then only have baked beans for the rest of the month to eat yeah and and don't add things just to the pile because then you'll end up to having 30 projects to do before you get any of them done yeah i can't imagine ever doing that tom no not from experience <laughs> anyway yeah so so it's, it's, it was good it was fun i spent some money i got some lovely models i look forward to painting them so shall we move on to hobby news absolutely hobby news so hobby news we'll start off with warlord really and they're doing the judge dread mega box oh what's that now if anybody bought the judge dread starter set when it came out last year sometime i think yep. it was like 50 quid you got a few gangers some tokens uh, some judges the rule book a piece of terrain and a couple of bits and bobs and then this box is like a follow-on for that the idea being that if there's two of you who are playing the game and one of you's got the starter set the other person buys this box and you think absolutely everything you need to play a full-size game so it's add-ons to like you know um, expands on what you have already yes in it's I, I quite I haven't yet played the Judge Dredd game, but I, I do love Judge Dredd. Yeah, I, I, I like 2018. And, you know, it's but it is a bit pricey. I've, I've not looked at it, Tom, I must admit. Is it is it quite expensive? The starter set you get, which I have got, you get. A Judge Dredd, a Judge Death, a Street Judge. And eight gangers, some cardboard tokens, some cardboard terrain, and sort of everything you need to play it really, roughly. But then for an extra for a hundred pounds, you then get some city block enforcements, a city defense team, a grav car, two buildings, a block gang, uh, another rule book. And a set of tokens. So it's like you're looking at sort of like if there's two of you who want to pick it up and have everything you need to start playing full size games, you're looking at 150 quid. Yeah. Really. And then like the add on gangs for it, the Judge Dredd game, are sort of like, for example, like a Judge Anderson, so like on a lawgiver and on her own is like 15 quid. Uh huh. Uh, and then, like the other sort of like gangs, are like between fifteen and twenty-five pounds each for like three to six models. Yeah. So it isn't cheap, isn't super expensive, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, but it's. I unfortunately don't know anybody who plays it, but I am yeah. really pleased that they're doing this new mega bundle thing. Because it actually means that they're trying to support a game rather than just leaving it out there. Yeah, that's that's been a complaint some people have had about, you know, they release a game and then it's just left to hang. Yeah. So, hope because it became out during lockdown, mm-hmm. like, hopefully now it might entice some more people to play. 
Yeah. And I don't think Judge Dredd is uh, sort of like inf- impacted as much by them just having the comic license. Yeah. Because it's not like Walking Dead, where most people know the Walking Dead IP through the TV show. Yeah. I would imagine the vast majority of people who like Dread know it from 2018. Like, I know in my case, I used to read 2018 fairly religiously as a nerdy teenager. And then as an adult, I've read most of the uh, collected Dread files. Mm-hmm. So it's something, you know. Yeah, no, I used to get 2000 AD back in the day in the 90s as well. When I was a wee nipper, I used to read 2000 AD, but um, I, I just, I would, I would want to be the, the judges. I just, I just, I just not sure if, um, if playing the baddies would be as much fun. I just, I guess, because I always think of Jed just killing everyone, everyone all the time. Yeah. Yeah, I can't really. As I've not yet played it, I'm not really sure how, like, a gang of judges taking on, like, a gang of, you know, writing block security sort of work. Because you just imagine they're going to be sort of in ISO cubes quite quickly. Yeah. But... I mean, I, I would definitely, I'll definitely give you a game. Well, I'll have to get it. It's on my overall list to get it painted up. So I'll have yep. to get it painted up at some point. Definitely. Look forward to it. And so... Sort of, Carrying on the theme of Warlords of supporting older games or trying to sort of breathe new life into their games, their recent uh, sort of like hobby crate thing that they now do every month, this mystery bundle, the last one was Conflict 47. Yeah. And in it, you got a Conflict 47 rule book, a walker, a Fulsham Jaeger walker, and a box of the plastic Fulsham Jaeger. Yeah. Uh, and I think if you were picking up, if you wanted to pick up Conflict 47, I think that would have been a pretty good place to sort of jump in, you know, get the rule book, get the walker, get a box of troops. You sort of, you've saved money. It's a useful force. You know, away you sort of go. Yeah, I think with that one, because the people knew it was going to be Conflict 47, because they just they let that out that it was I can't remember it was that was it written on the box or something on the drop box it was going to be or it was called like the the science fiction one or something wasn't it yeah it's like they 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 sort of like the bolt action one was like it's specifically going to be D Day mm-hmm. and this one was like it's specifically going to be sci fi I think um, so I think it it would have been good if people had known that the rule book was in there um, yes. Because I would be annoyed if I was like, oh, I played Conflict 47, I'll get this one. And then it came with the rule book. I'd be like, ah, but I'm already playing Conflict 47. I don't, I don't need another copy of the rule book. Yeah. Um, so it would have been good if, because the people who aren't playing Conflict 47 may not have picked up because they're not playing it. And those who are probably wouldn't need the rule book. So it kind of the Venn diagram of the people who are going to pick it up and don't already have the rule book. I'd imagine the crossover is quite small. I would imagine so, but I think I have noticed that Warlord have been doing quite a bit of recently is including rule books in things as like giveaways. Mm-hmm. Like actually, we're going to get the rule books out there. I think that's a great idea. Get people playing the game. Yeah, because I like, I would admit I don't really have any interest in playing Conflict Forty Seven because no. I'm not particularly interested in like Weird War very much. Yeah, but 
I wouldn't be averse to playing it if it means I could play basically bolt action with people who don't want to play World War Two. Yeah, it, it does give you that option of um, then it becomes fantasy, doesn't it? And yeah, so, it's like, you know, you're not playing Germans, you're playing zombies or, yeah. you know, you're not killing these paratroopers, you're killing these werewolf things. Yeah, exactly. So it does, that is an option if, you, if historicals uh, are a moral quandary for you. Then playing Conflict 47, there's, a, there's sort of a, another way into playing the game. And it also allows you to do a lot more sort of kit bashing and be a lot more creative. Because, you know, if you've got, well, this is a Sherman tank with a Tesla coil on it, you sort of got a lot more sort of wiggle room to actually, well, what does that look like? Rather than this is a Sherman with a 105 howitzer on it. Mm-hmm. So I can, I can see that appealing to people. So then that's really it for Big Warlord News. At the moment, it's been a relatively slow week. Do we know what the next one's going to be, the next box? I don't know at the moment. I will have a look as we speak. Uh, it's a Judge Dread one. There you go. August Supply Drop, Operation Dread. Actually, <laughs> I might have to think about that one, because whatever in it would be useful. Well, you, you haven't got much. You've just got the starting set, haven't you? I've only got the starter set, yeah. So whatever it is, it's going to be useful because even if it's just the basic troops, you're going to get more of the basic stuff that you need. So, yeah, if you um, if you feel you need it and you can afford it, then that's good. Well, you know, having had a few weeks of what have you bought this month, nothing, nothing, wouldn't have to necessarily feel so bad about it. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, I'll, I'll give that some serious thought. Yeah. So moving on into just sort of like this isn't a specific like company hobby news, but something I have noticed a lot recently is it's the slowdown and the delay in Kickstarters. And I think this is going to be like a, the double whammy of COVID and are they for some of the UK companies Brexit. But I think it's, yeah. it's mostly COVID because I am sort of waiting on three relatively large Kickstarters. And like one of them I was intending to be delivered in the next few weeks. One of them at the end of this year and one of them the middle of next year. Now, they are uh, all three of them are board games with quite a lot of miniatures. Mm-hmm. And they've all been delayed either six months to a year. And so having a look a little bit through the, the Kickstarter ecosystem, it seems an awful lot of Kickstarters which are having components made abroad, specifically in China, seem to be, be delayed or they're having production problems. One of the games is a, a game of They Live, based around where they assault the TV station. And when all the production samples came back from the factory to the people who were made the game the production samples were atrocious so they've had to go out and find new manufacturers for it all and bumped that thing much further down the line another game uh, a viking saga based game the company that was going to do all the cardboard components for that said they couldn't do it because it wasn't a big enough game so they've had to find a new printer for all the cardboard mm-hmm. so it just seems you know, if you're really getting excited and really waiting for a Kickstarter that 
his stew in the next you know six to twelve months. You know, maybe put a pin in it and be prepared that it might be late. Um, not all of them are because the uh, dark dwarves, which I think back back in February and was expecting at the end of this year, I think they're already starting being posted out. They're all cast and ready to go. But I think if you're waiting for a project that's got multiple components, which are going to be made by multiple manufacturers and then sort of assembled somewhere, you know, I would imagine more likely than not it's going to be delayed. Yeah, no, I, I've, I've got a friend who doesn't work in overseas, but he does UK manufacturing and he is working his socks off producing so much like just just so many back orders and orders that just need to be produced at the moment and i think it must be the same overseas as well in china and so on people are just trying their best to get this stuff made and it's just you know it all needs to be made yesterday but unfortunately you know just got just got to be done when it can be done yeah and you know there's things like a global shortage of cardboard yeah just think it's impression oh well they, they can't ship it because they can't get the cardboard boxes to ship it. You know, you might think, oh, we'll just order some cardboard boxes. But when there's a global shortage of cardboard. You know, yeah. The, yeah. It all knocks on. There's the people who should be cutting down the trees can't go to work because of COVID. And then, you know, it all just leads on from there, doesn't it? You just people are just not making as much stuff because they can't get out because they're on lockdown. So just, you know, once the reserves are used up, yeah crazy i'm sure that's that's part of the reason why curse city became a limited run well i did hear uh through the grapevine that it was the it was actually the cardboard components made it prohibitively expensive yep it was all the like the tiles and that sort of thing and that's why they're not doing any more of those like big games where you get like basically a, a table's worth of cardboard yeah that is the sort of like the mat because those big like that that kind of thing just costs a lot now yeah like we'll have to see because there are rumors of there being launched a new boris heresy plastic set coming out yes that's right so we will have to sort of yeah. see how that goes as they sort of i mean this is this is back into the news again but yeah i mean i can see that Horace Heresy needs to be rejuvenated because I know certainly at our club it has just dropped off, hasn't it, completely? Apart from Adeptus Titanicus, really. Um, yeah, I, I would say at our club it's died to death. Yeah. But some people really love it. And, you know, we've talked before, I, I would like to play Titanicus at some point. But, yeah, I just think it's one of those things I would have to want to play rather than actually ever really playing it. Yeah. But then in other sort of GW news, while we're here, uh, the Age of Sigmar Dominion is now sort of out. You can buy it. Did it sell out? Mm. That's unusual. Unusual. Well, I, I'm is that the... because you is that? Do you think that's because it wasn't demand, or because GW were actually prepared properly for release day and were able to meet expectations? Um. I'm not doing an expert on it or anything, Tom. Just you know, <laughs> I think it's, it's possibly they were able to meet expectations. I, I, I would imagine they have learnt from other situations. This is the third edition of Age of Sigmar now, in not that many years. So mm-hmm. I would I would imagine they've learnt how quickly things sell out, and also 
you know, the very bad taste that Cursed City and other things have sort of left in them. And I think they are, well, they are obviously as of visibly trying to get a handle on the uh, like pre-order system and like people actually being able to buy their products. Because I'm sure from like a business standpoint, if you want to sell boxes of toy soldiers and they've sold out five minutes after they go on sale, you know, you've got a lot of potentially unfulfilled customers there. Oh yeah. Is there anything else? I don't think there is. Sir. I'm trying to get any models that have come out from anyone. War Games Atlantic haven't released anything. No. No, I think it was. Um, I think it's been like a, re- a re- relatively quiet week. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, quite a fortnight. So cool. I hope if it's a, if it's nice and quiet, Tom, I might save some money. That's always good. That is always, you know, a good thing to have, isn't it? Oh, there's Pendragon had their new website, didn't they? Oh yeah, and they 10%. had the ten percent, mm-hmm. the ten percent sale. And you have to find out in the next episode whether I resisted or not. <laughs> yeah. games we played so we went to a tournament didn't we tom we did on saturday the 3rd of july we went south of the river braved warlocks and dragons mm-hmm. and went to lewisham we did i should mention i did have a, a little practice um game against lovely neil hi neil uh, a really nice game which i won but it was it was a great game. He was a great, he's always a great opponent. Always good fun to play. Uh, good old Neil, um, and it was good to refresh my my brain on the on the missions and the rules. So thanks for that, Neil. Yep. So we we went to the Selwig Bolt Action Summer Tournament. Don't panic, twenty twenty one. That's which, why we all got Corporal Jones. Yes. As part of the tournament pack, we all got a couple of free minis. And a couple of dice. Yep. What figure did you get, Andy? I got Corporal Jones. Oh, so did I. So. I mean, that makes sense with the don't panic, doesn't it, really? I mean, yes. I can't believe I've only just realised that right now. <laughs> uh, for listeners who aren't of a certain vintage, that's a quote. It's a catchphrase from a, a very popular 60s and 70s British TV show called Dad's Army, about the, the British Home Guard. It's not a reference to The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah. But, um, it would make, make less sense. Yeah, nobody was carrying around a towel at the event. <laughs> that we know of. So this was a, because Britain is still in COVID restrictions and things, this was a socially distanced COVID secure tournament. And my overall opinion of the tournament was, given the restrictions because of COVID and things like that, it was a great success. Oh, absolutely. It was fantastic. Really well run event, for considering the, the COVID. It was the first tournament I've ever been to where rounds started early. Yeah, really I a- saw, yeah, I saw that people were starting. I was like, should I be starting the next round already? People were just getting on and getting playing, weren't they? So well yeah. run. And I think like the way it ran 
was that we were all put into six person bubbles on three tables. Mm -hmm. We were split. There was three Axis players, three Allied players in each bubble. And so we knew the three tables we were going to play on, and we knew which order we were going to play on them. Mm -hmm. And we also knew which order we were going to play our opponents on. So yeah. once we'd finished game one, we knew, like the six players knew who was then playing on the, who they were playing round two, what mission we were playing, and everything. So people could move their things and start setting up, start discussing the terrain and that sort of thing. And it, it just saved time and let the games sort of play out quite well. I think all of my games got to at least turn five. Oh, and yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we weren't playing meet and engagement. All the missions we were playing, we played sectors, double uh, development. Yeah, and key objectives. Key objectives. Yeah. So they they weren't the ones that you can win quite quickly. They're all ones that sort of took time. Mm -hmm. um, and I had three really good games. Yeah. Like not going to talk too much about the nuts and bolts or the tournament itself as, as we're going to have Scion in a future episode to chat mm -hmm. about the running it up for that sort of thing. But would you like to discuss your day first, Andy? Like, quickly go over what you took. Yes, I, I had my... Um, I took the army list that we built on the show, but I did swap the medic out for an um, anti-tank rifle just because medics can't claim objectives. They're both 30 points. They were going to do the same job as sitting in that Hannah mag make sure it doesn't run away but then they could jump out and claim an objective and yeah potentially fire a shot off of the rifle which you know during the day they did fire the odd shot and I think might have killed a couple of people with that anti-tank rifle um it was really good really good three really good good, good opponents um it was, I played Chris John and George through the day um are we, are we going to spoil the results? Should I tell the, the listeners what? We'll, we'll say how we, we, we both played. We were put in the same bubble. Yes, so, for obvious reasons, we, we do hang out together. So it made sense health-wise we stayed in the same bubble together. Um, so you were playing the same people, weren't you, Tom? Yes. Um, and yeah, first game was really good with Chris. Um, only lost one unit. Uh I was playing veterans all day, Tom. And so you were as well, I guess. Yes. <laughs> but um, you had veterans. It's like, oh, my gosh. It's like, can I just have something I can wound on a four, please? Um, so I was putting loads and loads of shots out. And I was I was playing quite cagey, I guess. I I did, over the, the three games, I only lost five dice worth of units. Didn't lose many, many men. And I was using regulars, so I, I guess I was doing quite well. Um but that first game against Chris, it was um, key objectives and on a desert board. So I was quite glad to have it on the desert board. And, you know, it, it's that last round rush, isn't it, to claim the objectives that always happens with um, that game. But my, my howitzers and mortars across all three games were terrible. I kept rolling ones, get them ranged in and then just roll ones for them. Terrible. Um, but for me, um, probably the most interesting game was the second game. I think that kind of showed up some glaring issues with buildings in bolt action because it was it the board looked lovely. It was um, 
double envelopment. We're both trying to get off each other's board edge. But having the the army list I was up against had um, lots of heavy machine guns, um, two bazookas, big units of veterans. Um, so he had lots of stuff that they could really take out my my Hanamags. Um, and his veteran squad just ran up and there was like an 18 inch long church right in the middle. And once you get a unit inside a building, it could be anywhere from one end to the other end. And he, he first turn, he took out my my howitzer. I think it was his second turn because he called first turn. He called in the airstrike, turned up turn two, just destroyed the howitzer. I had nothing that could take the buildings out. Um, and that gave him just that ability to move the units. He had one unit on the, on the left-hand side in a big building and then the church in the middle and he dominated two-thirds of the, of the board that way because they can almost like teleport around inside the building. Yes. And then if you're trying to shoot veterans inside a building, well, good luck. Six is followed by six is followed by fives and six. It's just like, oh my gosh, I'm just gonna, never going to kill enough of them to get them out of the building. And I'm not, I'm not stupid enough to try and charge a unit of 10 veterans in a building with five regular guys and it was too narrow for me to drive my hanamags out because he could then just charge out the building six inches assault the hanamag my guys would just come out and then have to fight around a combat and they'll die and then of course the transport will disappear as well yeah but on the right hand side he had all the bazooka teams and the um and this the american vehicle that had four heavy machine guns on absolute like meat chopper and i don't know what i could have done in that I, I managed to first turn race uh, i've got seven units off the board at the end so his uh nine units but i really i i don't know what i could have i could have done I, if i hadn't rushed the first turn to get those units off then yeah it was just um the build it was it was the it looked beautiful they were a lovely foreground model and it did look amazing but i just it was just the wrong scenery for my list and i i don't know how i could have played it differently really um uh, but you know i think it's just I, just how things work sometimes i think that table it didn't really work very well for bolt action yeah because it looked beautiful I played on its third game for sectors, mm-hmm. and the guy who played on it first. I'll, I'll quickly sort of jumping in a little bit. Uh, sorry, Andy, but like, I, I took my Japanese, which we built on the list. We built also yeah. on the show. Again, it was all veteran, no vehicles, fourteen dice, a uh, couple of machine guns, some bigger squads, some like single man, small team suicide guys, that sort of thing. First game played on a it looked when you set up a relatively open table because there was lots of fields and a couple of walls mm-hmm. but once we actually started so we and we sort of said right that's hard cover this is soft cover i don't think either of us got a shot off all game that was lower than at least a five or a six because yeah. there was all right there was two walls that basically covered at least i'm going to say 32 inches of the middle line there was like a couple of gaps in it but basically there was these two walls that more or less went across half the table yep yeah I, when i yeah I, when i played in that, that board as well it was just it just because i had that, that crisscross the crossroad in the middle with hedgerows and walls along it just meant that everything got covered yeah hard cover or soft cover 
everything was always in cover. And like I was quite lucky in that regard, in that my opponent got the first dice. He had an air observer and he got the first dice. And he called in, he used his sniper first mm-hmm. rather than his air observer and like did nothing with his sniper. I got the second dice, fired my howitzer at the ruin where his uh, air observer was set up, mm-hmm. got the six, you know, vaporized his air observer nice. and his buddy. Uh, so that sort of like put me automatically sort of like a little bit on the front foot mm-hmm. but the rest of his army was sort of in a way designed to eat mine because it had the thing they had the four hmgs in the armored carrier which yep. is, you know surprisingly good at killing veteran squads when it's wounding them on threes this sort of a thing so we just had to sort of play quite cagey and it was sort of like here we go he would kill a few of my guys i'd kill a few of his guys but mm-hmm. it was sort of through because I had slightly more dice, I was able to sort of pin some of his stuff down enough that I ended up being able to grab three objectives to his two. Yeah, and then when we flipped them, I'd got because the the for this event, the objectives were secretly numbered, they were numbered 10. There's five objectives, one of them was worth 10 points, two was worth three, and two was worth six. And I ended up with 19 points worth of objectives to his yeah. nine uh so that was like a good win for me but was like very cagey where like, I, I think i might have killed like four of his units and he killed like mm-hmm. a couple of mine but uh the second game played on a much more it was like it, there was either line of sight blocking terrain or nothing the desert board. that was a desert board yeah that was that was i, I mean i had dac that was yeah. really good for my Hanamags to drive around on, and yeah, that was perfect for me. Um, and that was a, a good game. It was really close right to the end. I'd got one unit off. My opponent had got no units off, but he'd killed five of my dice, mm. and I'd killed four of his. Yeah. But I, because like to kill a unit's worth one point, to get a unit off the board is three. Yeah. So then, like, then the, the TO said, one minute or two minutes to go so we said my opponent said shall we call it there so i was like fine call it there and then he did something that sort of stuck in my craw a little bit so he says like right the next turn i do this i do this and i do that um and all of a sudden he like he ran three units off the board in the sixth turn that he decided to have uh after saying call it there now and i was thinking around two units off like i let him have it because he didn't win anyway he didn't get enough points to win yeah and i didn't want to sort of spit my dummy out that much um and i did apologize for looking like i was sucking on a wasp but i think it's not if you say let's call it there yeah call it there you don't go right next turn i'm going to do this or i'm going to do that if you're going to then do start doing the hypotheticals you're gonna you should say like shall we if we call it now, do you agree that I get this off next turn or that sort of thing? You're talking about the the board with all the buildings on. I played on that third turn and I had a very similar army to the guy who played on it first turn. And he yeah. had simply evaporated his opponent's army 
by assaulting from building to building to building and was sort of the other side of the table by like he was like basically assaulting the back line of the table by turn three yeah because of how you could zip through these buildings yeah and uh because how in bolt action works you can assault six inches lots of the buildings were only four and a half inches apart oh yeah so you, and there was, could, there was loads of um like every road had a tank um what do you call it um a tank, tank barrier in there yeah on it like the, the mid one there's none at all yeah and the city fight one was just so it was like there was no yeah I, yeah i think there should have been something on that middle table blocking <coughs> the road so, if, if it, yeah yeah so like what i did with with my opponent who was a great guy in the third round i said right when i assault building to building i'm going to move six inches into the building not like I, I when i did do an assault from a building into the big church yeah but i sort of measured it and it, it, when i realized it was four inches i was like i've got to do this and it, it like it, it won me the game really and it was one side did that but then once i was in the church i because the church was probably like 18 inches long I wasn't oh, it was. It was huge. You just it gave. If you had that board, that that building or unit, and it gave you complete dominance, like just from that building. Yeah. Yeah, and like within the the letter of the rules, I could have like charged in, in the door on one corner, and then the following turn, charged out the door on the other corner. Yeah. To another building that was eighteen inches away, so I could have technically done like a twenty-four inch move. Yeah. In one turn which is a bit cheeky. I mean, I think that that board just really exposes the issue with um, buildings in bolt action. If you have like a small little cottage, it's a basic like little six inch square little cottage and a two or three on the board, it's not a problem. But in a city yeah. fight where you've got these giant buildings, then it's a real problem. Yeah, and also like, unfortunately for my opponent, he had no HE. Mm -hmm. Like the only thing he had was a light anti tank gun, mm -hmm. which basically is going to do nothing in the building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but but I can also understand how much of a pain it must be for a TO to have to go right when we set these buildings up, we're going to have to like set most of them at least seven inches apart, so you can't assault from building to building. Yeah, I like, mean it. It looked beautiful that board looked amazing but i i just it would i it was not fun to play on no I, I think it was also like probably like the the perfect storm of having two japanese armies oh, there was only three japanese armies at the whole event but having two of them play on that board really mm -hmm. helped us yeah um but yeah so i ended up the day with two wins and a draw and I got, really I got two wins and a loss. <laughs> so I'm happy with that. <coughs> I have uh, to say, um, everyone I played was really great. I played uh, George in the final round. He had some powers and he was, he was a really great opponent. We were both really tired and it was a bit of a weird game. I didn't lose a single unit in that game. I took one, one casualty. One guy got shot in that game and we just kind of like played it really cagey for like the first five turns him slowly advancing my panamags in reserve and then they all just came on and 
roared across the table to try and get into his area and it was like find a little tank battle and you know and he he kept saying my dice rolls are terrible so it was like oh my gosh <laughs> just don't well, play dice. So it, was, I, I was, it was just really fun because you know if you're playing a good opponent it, it it's good you know and he, he was very, very courteous, really helpful, really communicative. So thanks to George um, for that one. And I think it also demonstrates if you play to the mission, you don't necessarily have to have the best dice rolls either. Oh, no, I think dice rolls is a, a good thing to chat about briefly because I was thinking, oh, my, like how it scissor and mortar, especially my mortar, hit nothing until the third game. Yeah. But then in reality, like one of them took out the air observer turn one on the first game. Yeah. And then like they did nothing for the second game. For the first, they did then nothing really for the next two games. But the third game, I think I rolled like either three or four sixes mm-hmm. on, on what I needed. And then like quick, really quickly zeroed in on like his big 10 man veteran squads. And you know, 10 man veteran squads being hit with a heavy mortar don't last very long. And he was That's just true. Like, so, like, thinking over all the dice rolls that I'd rolled throughout the day, yeah, I had some appalling luck, because I always kept, for two games, it said that if I needed a five, I'd roll a four. If mm-hmm. I needed a four, I'd roll a three. And it was just... But thinking back over the whole day, I, I'm sure my dice were completely average. Yeah. And it's I just... I just I just rolled several ones for my my mortar when it was rain ranged in and my howitzer kept rolling ones. It was just it was like it'd become a bit of a joke. But I did my mortar did redeem itself. I, I was using my big black dice and I was like, okay, I'm going to give it one last chance to redeem itself. I needed a six and I rolled it and I got a six and it was like, well, you know, <laughs> sometimes you get ones, sometimes you get sixes. So it was good. Yeah, great event, great opponents. I didn't have a problem playing any of them. Like there was never a point where we had an argument about anything. If there was a slight rules query, we just check it and it was fine. And everyone was really communicative. I really couldn't have wished for for three better opponents. I would rather have played my uh, played um, uh, John on the on the wide open board of the nice straight road rather than that city board. But you know, it, it's nice to have to make yourself think and try and work around problems. And yeah. Just a really great event all round. Yeah, and you know, ignore my moaning and sour grapes. I had, again, you know, everyone I played was great. Really liked to play them again. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of fun. And, you know, it was a great day out. Yeah. Hi, Andy here. Thanks for listening to Hobby Support Group. If you're listening on Spotify, can I ask you just to click on and subscribe to us? It'll be a really big help. Just, just get your get your phone, what you ever use, and, and go on and, and just subscribe. And then you'll never miss me or Tom ever again. And thanks again for listening to Hobby Support Group. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Listener questions. Uh, hi, Andy. Hey, Tom. So today we're going to look at a listener question from Chris that he asked me, how do I go about sort of choosing paint, storing paint, and keeping it so it's sort of it's useful long term? After he'd sort of been having a hobby stock take, yeah. I found out that he'd had a lot a lot of paint that was sort of somewhat antiquated. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. the dried up paint, the bane of every painter. Well, you know, it's, it's when you find that trove of the you know the old Citadel paints, and then you realise they are now all 
at best silly putty, if not just rock hard. Yeah, no, I I do find I think some paints are are worse for that than others. Um, I don't know if you found that experience, Tom. I think a lot of it comes down to bottles. Yeah, me too. Like I I can honestly say the amount of paint that I've had cure solid in a dropper bottle is I think I can I can possibly think of maybe one bottle. I've, if, I've never never had that happen to me of a dropper bottle. Whereas the especially the old style GW ones with the flip lids, mm-hmm. they were particularly bad. Yep. And the more modern ones with the more like slightly softer molded lids. Yep. They still dry out, but nowhere near as bad. Yeah, um, the old the old black lid bolter shell ones were the uh, always had to dry out really quickly. Yeah, and like um, the ones with the white lids before before the like bolter shell ones, I think they were mm-hmm. even worse. Um, you know, truly showing my age now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, on a bit of a tangent here, but the original Citadel paints, I believe, were coat to arms paints. Yeah, branded. So if you if you are looking for any old little paints, then go to Coda Arms, um, and get tentacly pink, <laughs> or whatever it is. Um, like Vallejo, uh, Scale Seventy Five, all those um, Army Painter. I've never had a problem with those. I do find that Army Painter separates a lot. You have to give it a good solid shake. Um, yeah, Army Painter. So sort of like what I do. Uh, a quick chat about what I do, then you can tell me if you do anything different, Andy. Like sounds like a plan. Painting historical stuff, I don't think you need very much tentacly pink. I, very little, I'd imagine. <laughs> Whereas you need like a lot more things like buff yellow, yeah. um, and like I, I think that's just how it comes. You know, if you're painting, like you will find everybody paints, and you will find that you paint with a certain number of colours. Like I. I have a lot of brown and green paints because I'm always painting stuff that's brown and green mm-hmm. and having more shades pre-mixed allows me to make all my minis the same without having mm-hmm. to look at paint recipes. Yeah. Because I'm intrinsically quite lazy and don't want to be looking well, if I put two drops of this and one drop of that, I then get this third color that I will paint the knees in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I much prefer, right. Just jotting down, right, trousers this colour, webbing this colour, garters this colour, away we go. So when I'm starting a new project, I will look up if there is a paint set available for that project. Yeah. And as I started out collecting paint sets, I just got the paint set for that project. As time has gone on and I've got more and more paint sets, I now look for the paint set see what colours there are and I've probably already got most of those colours. Yeah. And then I just then print out a list of what the colours are, take the colours from my individual paint sets, paint my project and then put the individual colours back in their paint sets. Mm -hmm. Because it's then much easier than I don't rather than keep all the individual paints in a paint rack because it then just saves me the five minutes going through the paint rack looking for all the different like summer 1944 camo pattern green and browns when i just 
pulled them off a shelf in one go. When I'm Tom, when I'm when I'm painting a unit, if I know I've got a set of colours, I'm going to, I will take those out and I'll put them maybe in a small plastic container, like an old uh, takeaway container next when, that I'm using when I'm painting that army. And I know all the paints I'm going to use for that army are in there, like in a separate tub, just there, ready to go. So when I pull them out of the cupboard to go painting, they're just ready to start. Like, there's the green; it's right there, right next to the army. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I do. Like I have two. Uh, nail varnish racks yep. on my painting table, which hold about 150 dropper bottles, and I have also like all the rest of my paint sets are in the little cardboard boxes that they come. And I have, as you say, like a tray holds probably about 20, 25 paints. Which when I'm painting something, I pull out because even if you have the six or seven paints from a paint set, I find I always need probably about at least that again. In other things, you need things like right. You, yeah. need the, you need a black. You need a white. You need flesh tones. Mm-hmm. You need wood. You need like a wood highlight. You need gun metal, and they're the my like sort of the go-to paints, which sort of go from project to project to project. And I sort of like over time, I found like what's the black that I really like to paint with? What's my favourite flesh tone? What's the white that really works? what's the best gun metal and sort of like they're the paints that i sort of use multiples of and i've sort of always got like at least one spare one in the paint rack yeah because you know you do get through the ones that you use all the time but i think it's also like i know myself at one point i realized i was probably collecting paint as much as i collected minis mm-hmm. and i had you know enough paint to go like realistically i'm not going to use this in five years so I've recently had a big sale and, and sold a lot of my sort of double ups and paints that I didn't need and sort of some of the, the, the paint sets that I bought that I did haven't yet used and I realized I'd got all the other paints in different kits. And so like I've sold I think six paint sets and a bag of forty mixed paints. Um, yeah. just to A so they don't go to waste, B free up the room. And so, so like when I buy paint now, I say I always buy dropper bottles. I I don't like. I the only GW paint I use really isn't paint. I just use the washes. Yeah. Um, I've tried a few of the contrast paints. I do quite like the. There's one of the contrast paints, the Mephiston Red. I like for painting red leather. But the rest of the contrast paints, I'm not really a huge fan of, and I I loathe GW bottles. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, going back to being a bit lazy, I'm not really fast about pouring them into dropper bottles. Yeah, yeah. Some people find that they, you know, would rather have just pour them in and rebottle them. I've never. I've got a few GW like you. I've got contrast paints. I've got a lot of contrast and a lot of old. Um, legacy citadel paints we say that i've had for years but i am really moving forward to the dropper bottles because just i find them just so much better yeah and i've like over time i've tried various different ones i started off with model color moved on to the uh some of the army painter and some of the ak stuff i then moved on to just using ak paint because i really enjoyed it um i really like the ak paint but um 
unfortunately don't really like AK anymore. So I sort of moved on. Uh, now use a mixture of sort of MIG. And actually gone back to the Vallejo model colour. And yeah. I found, to be honest, <clears throat> the model colour stuff I've been using recently is really nice paint. It is good paint. Um, and I, I have a, a, a fairly simple system for like when I get paint now, no matter what company it is, as soon as I buy it, it, it sort of goes on my painting table. I take the tops off. Uh, and then I put three uh, all steel BBs in each bottle. Mm-hmm. Then put then put the lids back on. I don't bother using expensive glass agitators or anything like that. I just use BBs. I've never had any problem with them, mm-hmm. and they are a fraction of the cost of the glass beads. Uh, and did you buy them special? Is it? I know they sell them um, like army painters sell them and. Or do you do you literally go to like a a, a BB gun shop and bought, uh, bought them? I bought them on eBay, uh, one thousand stainless BBs. I think they were eight pounds. Oh, that should do you. I bought them probably ten years ago, and I'm halfway through the tub. And as I say, I put three in each bottle, and then about. 18 months ago, I was bought a uh, a tattooist ink mixer, and that is an amazing tool. It, it really sort of, if, if you've got, especially like the army painter paints, which may have separated out, bang it on that for 30 seconds, and it really is a sort of a game changer. You know, you just... It's not an expensive one. Mm-hmm. I think it was about 30 quid off eBay. And it's it's one for tattoo ink rather than the laboratory one that you see posted on a lot of the hobby vortex pages. Yeah. Mixers, yeah. I mean, Army Painter are prone to set. They're the worst for separating, in my humble opinion. So I would always, yeah, give them a really, really good shake. So if you've got a mixer like that, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's as I say, it was a gift. It was it worked brilliantly. It just plugs in by USB. I could see, like, I would recommend people picked up one of those. I think the like the hundred pound laboratory ones. I think that would have to be more of a, you know, if your personal circumstances give you that much disposable income. But I think, yeah, I'm not sure what a relatively cheap. Tattooist things one's going to give you over the lab one because it's, it's not like you're going to be using it eight hours a day, five days a week. Yeah, I think for me, it feels like it would be a bit of an extravagance when I can just shake my arm <laughs> for a little yeah. bit. Yeah, know. it's like the one I like use, ex- and that's like exercise for me, Tom. You know, yeah, it, it's like literally the one I use, like when I get paints out that I might not have used for a year, 18 months, you know, before I start painting a project. Each bottle goes on it for like 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. And then I find once I've done that, from that point on, it's easy. You know, all I need to do then is, as you say, you know, shake your arm a little bit. And, you know, those of us who are able to, you know, shake an arm don't really need it from that point on. But I would say it's probably rescued half a dozen paints which are mm-hmm. like truly separated and you know sometimes when they separate enough where it's like 
actually can I vigorously shake this enough to get it back into life or not? Oh yeah, I mean um, the, the, some. I mean those contrast paints. Well, you're supposed to shake those up before you use them because it, some of them really do settle down, don't they? Um, and I, there's a few in my collection of contrast paints. We're like, whew, I've been shaking this for a good long time, burning those calories off, shaking this bottle of paint. Um, one well, thing um, that I do, Tom, yes. one thing that I do is I have, and this is for listeners from last episode, I have four tubs. <laughs> I like my tubs. Um, and I've split my paints up because I had so many. I, I think the racks, they're great if you've got a permanent place to paint, but you know I have to put them away in my cupboard and bring them out again when I want to paint. And so I, racks wouldn't work for me. So I just have four tubs, and I've written it on paper. Um, so I've got, I've got um, washes and metals, I've got dull, I've got bright, and I've got my contrast paints. And my wife always laughs, laughs at my tub that's got just got dull written on it. <laughs> What's in that box? <laughs> dull things. But it's pretty much is like, you know, washes uh, and metals and, and sort of technical paints in one. Um, and then the dull paints are for, you know, for tend to be historical paints. The bright ones are for painting fantasy and sort of science fiction. And the contrast, there's just all contrast in there. Um, and I'll go and get the tub for whatever project I'm doing. And it actually works as a really good system. Occasionally, I'll need something from the bright box for historical or something from the dull box uh, for something fantastical. Um, but just, just, just knowing that, okay, I need a, a brass color. I just know, great. I'm going to go to the, the, the metal and washes box and get it from there. It just get, allows me to hone in a bit quicker. Because they were yeah. all in, they used to be just all random. I'd be like, okay, I need a, you know, I'll, I'll just use whatever color I come across next <laughs> because there's so many to sort through. Um, but now I've, I've, I've divided those out. But I also have a smaller one, like a little travel. It was a little tub I got from Tiger. It was a, it was like a, like a, a sandwich box. The holds probably like 20 paints. And I've gone through and I've selected like a white, a black, um, the four. Army, like soft tone, strong tone, light tone, flesh tone, a blue, a yellow, a green. You know, the colors are gold, uh, a gunmetal, a flesh color. Um, the colors that I know I use, I think there's like five different types of brown in there. Um, you know, uh, a collection of, of like key paints. And that stays on my painting table. And if I'm ever going to do like, I've, I've gone to the club just to do painting. I will take that and I might swap a few colours out for some key colours that I'm not going to need. So if I'm going to paint like some Polish soldiers, then I'd, I'm going to need, you know, um, the colour for their uniform. So I'll grab those and put those in, in, in there as well. But just having them divided, it can make it so much quicker to find the paint that you're after. Oh, um, com completely agree. And I think it's also quite a useful tip to like, actually have a, a pretty good idea of what paint you've got because it's not especially if it's all in tubs or all put away or something it, it, you can quite often like forget what paint you've got which is the reason also why i had the big paint clear out because like i i am lucky in that i'm able to have the two racks i've got out but not mm -hmm. all my paint fit on there and i was like actually you know as a separate point as well is to be so honest with yourself and go what kind of painter are you like yeah. i realized i'm not the kind of painter who needs 11 different shades of red 
because I'm not going to build a red app through seven different layers of slightly different shades of red yeah. to go from like a very dull burgundy red to like bright vermilion through all of the different shades. Mm-hmm. That's just not my style of painting. I, you know, like four reds will do for me, not a dozen. Yeah. I, I remember I bought scaly, the Vallejo scaly green three times. <laughs> I have this habit, and I, it's, I, I'm sure it was a good habit or a bad habit, but when I place an order for some models and bits, I always go, well, I'll, just get a, I'll, get a, I'll treat myself to a couple of paints. I'll get some interesting, nice colours. Just, you know, I'll restock what's the things I need. I did a restock from Goblin Gaming recently, but I did get, like, a really interesting, nice-looking red. I, I'll, I'll, get, I'll get, just treat myself. I get, if I did nail varnish, I would be the worst, Tom. I would have so much nail varnish in my collection. But I bought this scaly green three times. So each time I went, oh, that looks like a nice green. And I hadn't even used the first one because I wasn't keeping track of what I had. Just like yourself, it was just loose in these different boxes. And it was like, only when I put them together, I was like, I've got three of this scaly green. Obviously, I like scaly green, but yeah, you know, I don't but- need three. I think that nail varnish thing is a a really good analogy because I know when AK brought out their third generation paints, they brought out like initially, I think it was about 50 or 60 of them. And I was like, at the time, I really like AK paint. I'll get all of these. And so I got them all. And it was a complete and utter waste of money um, because, as I said, you know, I got so many shades of red and so many shades of yellow i'm just never going to use them and so you know now flogging them on and just thinking you know i don't i don't need a complete paint select collection because i'm not a professional painter i paint what i like like i hate painting yellow so and i'm rubbish at painting yellow Yeah, man. so Mm -hmm. and i i'm trying to challenge myself to sometimes paint yellow and not just completely avoid it but I don't need to have, you know, 20 yellows because I can't paint yellow. I've got a yellow paint set and the full range of AK yellows. So you know I'll just keep the yellow paint set and get rid of the full AK yellow yep. paint set range. Um, spoilers, I use the contrast paint to do yellow. It's the best way for doing yellow that I've found. Uh, I'll have to give that a go because... Yeah. Um, it is, I would say it's, it's the one colour I really struggle at painting is yellow. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm the same, Tom. I've done yellow in the past and it's just, it's a hard colour to paint. While we're talking about paint, I just want to mention Scale 75 because their paints are really, really matte. I, I love how matte they are, but I've got such a big collection of paints of, of, from Vallejo. I'd feel it would be it would be hard to jump across to just use to, to scale seventy five. I'd have to restart all over again. I'm just not willing to make that commitment. But I really dig just how how matte they because I saw John at the club was had painted some his Polish partisans using scale seventy five, and I was like, wow, are those are those scale seventy five? Because they're so matte. And he was like, yeah, they're really good, aren't they? I was like, yeah. But that's something else to consider as well as like, uh, do you varnish or not varnish, Tom? I definitely varnish. Um, oh, you see, that's where we're different, hey? I used to use brush on varnish. Then I went to 
cheap spray varnish. Then got fancy and started using Tester's dull coat. Then I've moved on now to Rust-Oleum Clear, a uh, Crystal Clear. Yep. Which is the same company that make the Tester's dull coat. Yeah. But the big difference is it doesn't destroy the planet quite as much as dull coat does. Right. And like the dull coat is like when you can buy it. Is that like between five and eight pounds for like a tiny can? Yeah. Uh, like I don't know if you've ever seen the tester still. I don't know if you used. No, I coat. haven't. It's like a like a Tamiya can sort of size, little one. Yes. Yeah. And they're like between five and eight pounds, and like hen's teeth, it's really actually quite difficult to buy. Um, the Australian Crystal Clear is, I think, three quid for like. A primer size can, and you can buy it wherever you want and get it the next day. Right. And it is 95, if not 99%, as good as the dull coat. Mm-hmm. Um, like the big difference is it's completely clear. So if you yeah. have got, like, if you have painted with Vallejo and you've got that bit of a shine, it won't take the shine off. As much, right. whereas like dull coat will dull it down. Yeah. But if you've washed your models anyway, mm-hmm. they're they're going to they're not going to be. Yeah, you know, it doesn't necessarily do a, as much of a rescue job as dull coat can do. Yeah. But then, like mostly my models are in need of a rescuing through the dull coat because I wash. Like my final step of painting is, you know, as I'm no technical wizard, soft tone everywhere. That's how I do it. It's some water, it's watered down Ergrax Earthshade over the whole thing. Um, You know, tip of the hat, you know, tip of the rifle barrel down to the boots. Yeah. The the whole thing gets covered in some watered down Earthshade. And that's just my final step. So everything's always pretty. I mean, I'm, I'm the same. I just, I'd like to use soft tone. I know Monks was telling me off. He says, I've used too much. I need to use a bit less of the washes on my models. But it just ties the whole thing together um, like a rug. <laughs> uh, it ties the whole thing together really nicely. Um, it just looks, it just, it, I think it just improves the whole model look. Um, but it does make it a little bit on the shiny side, doesn't it? Well, I think it, it, it depends. And I think the, the like, the the difficult thing nowadays is I think some of the uh, washes are slightly glossy, and especially if you accidentally buy the gloss version, obviously. But even like the matte versions do sometimes have a little bit of a gloss sheen to them. Like I know I've seen several people commenting recently that, that especially with Earthshade and Null Oil, they've been finding it's been leaving things quite gloss. You you can knock that out by putting in some matte medium um, mm-hmm. and the, the, there's various videos online of ways of use of like cheaper ways of buying matte medium than the like drop a bottle of it you know you yeah. can use, use things like certain brands of floor varnish or you know artists matte medium all these sorts of things you, you can sort of like use to add to your paints or your your washes to 
you know, make them as matte or as glossy as you like. Yeah, um, I should mention here that I don't, I, I never used to varnish my models with metal models. You can find it does get worn off. And I did start varnishing them until I had a really bad experience where I, the night before a tournament, I painted like 10 Terminator Marines, sprayed them, and they all went cloudy. Like, I had to repaint, just redo the, the whole model the night before. And then I stopped using varnish because I was like, I just don't want to risk it. <laughs> Once you've had a really bad experience with like frosting, you kind of go like, well, that's it. Now, as the olive oil, well, I've never tried it, but it's recommended. I found it after the, after the fact, after it would have been useful to try it out. Um, but these days, I spray my models with, with hairspray because um, it doesn't frost. <laughs> <laughs> if you get, um, and it just gives it a little bit of protection. And certainly on plastic models, I find that's fine. I'm a lot happier spraying hairspray inside the house than I would be spraying varnish as well. I'm sure it's just as bad for my lungs, probably breathing in hairspray. If there's any chemists out there, let me know um, how much worse it, one is than the other one. Um, but these days, it's just, a, just a heavy dose of um hairspray over the models it sort of holds the flock and holds things together and just gives it a protected layer if that works for you i i, I prefer the the coat of varnish because i'm all my models have to travel a long way they're all going to get kicked about on the tube and on trains yeah and i would i would rather the varnish looks a little bit thick than the paint's chipped off yeah um because also, like, most of my... It, it depends what I'm doing. Like, for the vast majority of my stuff, like, pretty much, I, I will give them a coat of lacquer, really, because mm -hmm. they're toys to be gamed and played with. Yeah. Like, if I... Like, I do have a kind of dull coat that I use for stuff that I've, I'm really proud of painting. And it's, but yeah. it's more like... But those models are very few and far between mm -hmm. and aren't really necessarily toys. Because mm -hmm. it's like, most of my toys, it's like, I don't think you like, oh, if it falls on the floor or if someone like hits it with a dice, I can't like, I don't want to be in where I'd want to spit my dummy out because somebody like knocked their drink over and it splashed my toy. Um, so like those things I've spent hours and hours painting, I don't really game with. Yeah. Um, which is also why I very, very rarely spend hours and hours painting anything because I want to game with it. Um, oh, for sure. Anyway. Well, I think I think that might actually be a good segue into our main topic today. Hopefully, that is sort of a a roundabout question, sort of answering quick questions of like some of our thoughts on paint. Um, <laughs> and now, me and Tom are going to spend the next fifteen minutes watching some paint dry, <laughs> and we're going to narrate what we see as it dries. You've got some Ultramarines blue there, haven't you, Tom? And we're just going to just going to apply that there to. Uh... If I don't have any Ultramarines blue, I do have. A dark Prussian blue. And we're going to put them next to each other and, and just watch them as they both dry. And we're just going to see yeah. which one dries the... Uh... If, if you're painting at home, it's model colour 70, 80, 99. I've gone for the, the Army Painter Ultramarine Blue rather Ooh. than the, the Citadel Ultramarine Blue. And I'm just applying of a roller all over my body. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> right. <sighs> Enough of this nonsense. On to the next segment, Tom. Right. The main segment.
So today's main segment is inspired in a way from last episode's listener question posed by Neil on how to sort of approach like a, a hobby sort of collection slash of cupboard above opportunity. So sort of how do you start paring it down for what you're going to work on? Mm-hmm. And so a follow-up question that we had from that segment is sort of like, how do you choose what games to play? And so this is what we're going to talk about today. And I'm so quite interested to hear Andy's opinions on this because we purposely haven't chatted together about this before we started to sort of see what we both came up with. And yeah. for me, I think one of the choosing what to play, I think one of the, the, the if not the biggest consideration for me is how much time have I got to play? Yeah. Like I play in normal times in a bi-weekly D&D campaign, which runs on a Wednesday night at the gaming club, which I'm a member of, Hackney Area Tabletop Enthusiasts. So that means every month, if we're going to say for ease sake, a month is four weeks. Every month, two of those sessions are playing D&D. That leaves me two possible gaming sessions for playing other games. And now, in my personal circumstances, I can't guarantee I am down to the club every single week. I would say probably if we take a two-month period, I will definitely have to miss at least one week. Mm-hmm. So that gives me three games in two months. Yeah. So, you know, extrapolate that out. So that means possibly in a 12-month period, I am looking at maybe 20 gaming sessions to mm-hmm. be played. And now, if I was to take part in another ca- monthly campaign, that means my entire gaming for that year is probably going to be playing my D&D campaign and that campaign with a mere handful of other gaming opportunities thrown in. And uh, and you have to be really honest with yourself and go, is this what I want to commit to or not? Now, how do you feel about campaigns, Andy? Well, uh, um, they're great. Um, I think back to um, the summer of my youth when I was like 16, 17, and I had a friend that would come over and we would play during the summer holidays. We played like every day, uh, like Blood Bowl. We did a campaign and we just played and played and played. And that was great. A uh, heyday of game playing for me. But I don't live that lifestyle anymore. Um, and the campaign, it just... It take it's a real commitment um, to your, to the other people. That's the thing. If it was just if I can't attend the campaign, if I haven't got the time for the campaign, I'm letting down a whole bunch of people, and that for me is a really serious consideration before I, I jump into a campaign. I know we've done little like sorry traffic. I know. Um, We've done little three game campaigns, like three linked games. And that's really good. But if it's going to be a continuing thing for the whole year, then, you know, you have to be really serious. For me, I think I have to be really serious about joining because the last thing I want to do is jump in. We've all been part of campaigns in the past that sort of burn out after a few sessions because you start off with 20 people are all going to do it. It's going to be brilliant. And suddenly a few weeks in, everyone's dropped out and you have to like four or five players. 
I would rather start with four or five players who are serious about what they're going to do. I think that's really a, a really important consideration is that how serious are you? And is it a game like you're all seriously going to play a lot of? And like, I am a, a huge fan of the, the, like the mini campaign or even the, the sort of the one day or the weekend event. Mm-hmm. Like I know like, the, the English Civil War thing that we planned and we will start playing at the club when it's it's more social distancing is no longer needed was sort of built around the idea of we're going to have three sort of games at some point on a Wednesday night and then we will have like a day of it one weekend when we all get together and that was how it was envisaged from the start and you know we had the uh, Frostgrave like one day campaign when we played them yep. Slime Lords thing. Like yeah. I much preferred that one day campaign playing the Slime Lords than the seven or eight like month Frostgrave campaign I played in when I was playing one game a month. Um, mm-hmm. It was just it was right today. I'm playing Frostgrave. A really good day of playing Frostgrave, and then it was done. Yeah, like because everyone everyone can focus for one day. Yeah. yeah. Whereas, like at our club, like probably the biggest campaign with the most number of players is probably the stench bowl which is yeah. a, a a blood bowl campaign that regularly has sort of 40 plus players in it and you know it goes on for 10 months and you're splitting to uh i think it's 10 or i think it's 11 10 or 11 player sort of leagues so mm-hmm. you're playing 10 other people over 10 months and now each month you'll get given your opponent. But as most of us are adults and timing is difficult, and if you already have other commitments, having to get that game in every single month can be an absolute pain in the backside. It is, yeah. To the yeah. point of like, right, the only time we can play, the only time both of us aren't at work in a reasonable hour, it's like, right, so it's Tuesday afternoon. And we've got to write, where can we play Blood Bowl on a Tuesday afternoon? I haven't got room in my house. I haven't got room in my house. Right. We're going to play it in a Weatherspoons in the middle of town. Um, you know, real world situation for me a few yeah. years ago. And it's just a pain in the back. It can be a pain in the backside. Um, yeah. As is, you know, that commitment of, right, you've got to get your games in and log. Because if you don't, you're basically, as you just said, you know, you're ruining the thing for everyone. Yeah. So, and no, nobody wants to be that guy. No, you know, and at least I don't. <laughs> no, it's like, and I know, uh, like we've talked about this on the show quite a lot about Oathmark, and our club is starting up an Oathmark campaign, but I'm not going to take part in that campaign because at the moment I just don't have the spare time or the physical yeah. capacity to commit to regularly gaming just one game. Um, I, Tom, I think this might be, because uh, I also wouldn't mind playing the odd game of Oathmark, but I think this might be a good point to jump in uh, with some of my thoughts on the number of games you play. Yeah. I mean, certainly with, uh, with, if you had more than one campaign, if you have four you play every wednesday we play every wednesday i play i know this you can play you can play as many nights as you want out there listeners but for me wednesday night is club night i play on wednesdays there's going to be four weeks in a month mostly so 
on average four weeks. If you've got four campaigns, well, that's every night finished for the month, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you've booked up every single night. So that's only going to be four systems that you're going to be able to play. One might, might be D&D, it might be Keyforge, it might be a board game, and then you might be playing Bolt Action, say. Right, that's your four games done. That's what you're going to play for the year. If those campaigns are all going to last a year, that's it. You're filled up. So I think any more than six key games that you are playing is just too many games. I think you need to sort of whittle it down and, and make a choice. Now, when I used to just play 40K, it was super easy to get a game because I'd go, who wants to play 40K? That's what I play. Who wants to play? Done. Stress is gone. Um, if you have six games that you're playing, you're only going to get to play those games each one of those eight times during the year. Uh, any more than any more than six games, and you start really reducing the number of games you're going to get to play. So I think you should really. I mean, four is probably the perfect number, but any, certainly no more than six games. And then you have to start choosing and sort of looking and going. Am I covering this game with something else? Do I need to play Kill Team and Necromunda and Infinity? Am I covering science fiction skirmish? Am I getting something more? Which of those three do I enjoy the most? It might be I love playing Necromunda because it's a great game. I love the, the history. I like playing Infinity because it has the best rules. And I like playing uh, Kill Team because there's a really great gaming community. I just like the guys you know, you have to have a reason why you're choosing every single game. Uh, do, you, do you agree, Tom? I completely agree. I think you have to have a reason why you choose every game. And I think you have to have a conversation with yourself about what you're going to play in a fixed period of time. And I, I tend to think about it not quite in like year blocks, but w like we plan what we're playing in a way like... At, in a way almost years in advance yeah like like we, we are now well along in discussions as a gaming like our little like our core gaming group within the larger club there's like you know probably you know, probably about a dozen of us who like play regularly together as a an extended group of close friends we're well along in our discussions of what we're playing in 2022 and i think it, it's having that conversation with yourself and your friends about what you're playing in the like the medium and longer term so you can decide right i really like this game but i'm not going to play it for a while because i'm going to play some of the stuff like i like playing blood bowl yeah but i probably haven't played blood bowl for about a year now well, it's two years now i haven't played blood bowl really for about two years i don't really mind not playing it for another year like you know, i might well well sit blood bowl out until another version comes along and I'll then go back to Blood Bowl. I like it, but I don't need to be playing it every week. So I, I think that there's nothing at all wrong with really like taking, putting a game that you play and you've got forces for, sort of like on hiatus and don't just think, because I've got this, I've got to play with it. Like, mm -hmm. I think you have to be honest and say, I don't want to play this anymore because I don't like the game. Yeah. Like, you know, if you've got that huge horus heresy army and you don't like playing a heresy because it's an old edition you just like to play the current edition of 40k you might say right i'm going to sell that heresy army because i'm not going to play with it anymore because i don't like that game anymore 
Mm-hmm. Whereas if you go, I still like this game, but I've got other games I want to play. Quite often, taking a break from and then coming back to it a few years later is completely fine. I, I would yeah. say, I, and also it allows you to have those games where sometimes, like out of the blue, somebody and like this is like, as you were saying with having the four campaigns, you have no room to play anything. You might have a game that you like playing, but you don't really ever play because one of those games that sort of only comes up once in a blue moon. Like you might have a Warmaster army, and then somebody on like the club page might say, "Anybody fancy a game of Warmaster?" And you go, "Do you know what? I actually would like to play a game of Warmaster, but you'd not really. It's not like in your rotation of things that you play." Yeah, um, I think it's a, actually think it's a really good idea to have a slot that you keep free for random games. Like well, that- you have your your set games that you're playing, but to have one slot is like, this is where I'm going to suddenly going to play Man Who Would Be Kings or uh, Warmaster or Hail Caesar or, you know, whatever game, not, you haven't planned it, but just you hear about someone on the club page goes, oh, I'd really love someone to play War of the Roses with me. You yeah. go, great. I'll, let's that's, that's, the, that's, in my case, that's what I try and do. I try and have, right, in this ideal four week block, Two games of D&D, because it's this ongoing campaign. One game of bolt action, because I really like playing bolt action. And then that fourth slot is either a week I have to miss because of a commitment, or playing something. It might be another game of bolt action. Could be Warmaster, could be Dracula's America, could yeah. be could be anything. Could be somebody's brought out this new card game and they're bringing it down to trial. Does anyone want to yeah. have a go? Yep, yeah, I'll have yeah. a go. Um that's how I work. But I, I think, I do think having a system and also working out what kind of games you like to play or yeah. what you play most like, you know, without just using examples of our club all the time, like we game on a Wednesday night after work. Skirmish games for regular play are much better because you can fit them in your army bag. You fit mm-hmm. them in your work bag. Like I can. Like a bolt action army is really, you know, thirty dudes, a couple of vehicles, maybe an artillery piece. Yeah, you can say like a, a half KR case, which could easily go into a, a backpack when you take it to work. Yeah, big battles on a Wednesday night again are a pain because you're having to transport multiple cases and all this sort of stuff, and and it detracts from the fun. So then, big battles become something you do uh, well i view as a special event yeah uh, um and they also dictate what you play because i know you've talked to me about in the past that you sold was it an orc or a guard army orc like, army yeah I, I had like three cases worth of orcs and then extra boxes just random boxes for vehicles and like yeah. you sold that simply because it was it was too big an army to take with you you couldn't it's, game with it yeah it was it, it i had to take it to work on the bus, get to work, keep it there, then finish work, get on the bus, go to the club, unpack it all, play with it, pack it all away, and then get back home on the bus. And it's just like, this is an absolute nightmare. You know, I, I changed to playing Grey Knights because I could put it in one case. <laughs> it's just yeah. so much easier. So I, I think that is something I would be mindful of, saying, what are you going to play? It's what is going to be enjoyable to play? Because, you know, if, if you're playing Necromunda and you've got 12 dudes that you can chuck in a VHS box size case and, you know, carry it in one hand, put it in your pocket almost, 
that's going to be much more appealing if you're coming in on a rush hour train or something yeah. than lugging several KR cases. If you're playing just at home and you leave all your toys set up anyway, then it's completely different. Yeah. So I, like, I would say like, have a big look. Have a look at your like, personal circumstances, where you're gaming, how you're gaming, and who you're gaming with. Mm-hmm. And then give yourself some variety. Like, as and you know, you, you might well find like you really like small scale sci fi skirmish, so you enjoy playing Necromander Infinity and Kill Team. It might be that actually you sometimes like playing sci fi skirmish, you sometimes like playing historical skirmish, you sometimes like playing rank and flank. So you could be going from playing Necromander to Mortal Gods to you know, Pike and Shot in. Six mil. Um, yeah, talk. yeah. It's like just give yourself the options to try uh, to do different things. Give a bit of diversity to what you're playing. That might suit you. You, you might be laser focused and just like once one thing, and that's fine as well. I think choose choose one game as your main game, and then maybe another couple, like maybe a campaign or something else, and then just leave leave yourself a space to find new things as well. Um, I used to say, I have been heard saying before, um, you don't have to paint rule books. That's why it's okay um, to buy them. You can buy as many rule books as you like. You don't have to paint them. You just stick them straight on the shelf and you can leave them there. I actually think that that could be a little bit of a bad attitude to have. Um, Because looking at my collection, there's so many games that I'm, you know, I'm thinking, gosh, when am I going to get to play all these different rule sets? I know I don't have to play them all in one year. But certainly, as I'm getting older, I'm finding I'm getting less time to play, and I'm I'm I think I need to make maybe a bit more of a choice of um, of what rule sets I'm I'm buying and what rule sets I'm I'm playing. So we just recently bought Rain and Hell, and that'll just be something I don't imagine I'll be playing it in ten years' time. Whereas I could still see myself playing bolt action in ten years' time, or uh, some form of English Civil War or, or Napoleonics in ten years' time. But, you know, it's okay to have things that are just short term. You play it for a bit and then you you move on and and do something else. And it's okay to have a main thing that, you know, I love playing Peninsula War. And that's my main thing, you know, and maybe have rule sets around that as well. But, yeah. For me, I I look at it as a a cost and a time investment sort of a thing. Mm -hmm. Like, I think, as you just said, like buying rule books is doesn't you don't have to paint them something i've been more mindful of of recently is buying rule books for a game that i really want to play reading the rules and then actually realizing you know this is more of a commitment than i wanted to give to this game yeah like i really wanted to play uh gamma wolves which is like Mm -hmm. a mech robots or that's right yeah built and i thought this would be really cool and would be a really cool opportunity to use some of the like scale robot like mech suit kits from japan which are really cool when i started reading i thought actually this is going to need like over 100 pounds worth of mech kits to play it and i need someone else to play against it with my interest sort of drops to the floor. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm a tell when I go onto eBay, I just need to not go on there. And I'll, you know, I'll see a rule set. I go, oh, that's interesting. I'd never thought about 
that period of history. And there is, well, it's only like seven or eight quid. Oh, I might as well pick that book up. It's like, and then it's just sat there in, on my shelf. And I, I'm not sure if I'm ever actually going to play that game. And it's like, well, is it worth keeping hold of that book? If rule books are a page you think you're interested in, but you haven't, you can't necessarily sell yourself playing at the moment, I would keep them because you never know, like, if something interests you. Like, I know, like, I somehow acquired a copy of Black Powder Rules, and I don't yeah. know where I got them from. Like, genuinely, I don't know. They just seem to have appeared on my shelf at some point. Mm-hmm. And yet, when we started talking about Black Powder, it was like, oh, I've already got those rules. Um, like, it, oh, so this is going to be different if you're scouring eBay every day and, you know, you're buying six rule sets a month. That's going to be slightly different. But if you're picking up one every now and again and there are things, you know, I would be interested in playing this in the future, but not at the moment. You never know when some models might come out for that period. And you go, Do you know what? They're really cool models. I really like mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. I guess it's down to the individual. You know if it's becoming a problem. If you, because I've got like two shelves worth of raw books, and I'm like, some of them. I think I'm going to get rid of a few of them. I'll be honest, Tom. Um, watch this yeah. face. Yeah, like um, it could, I, I suppose the other thing. Sorry to butt in. Is also that if you're buying rules for a, a game or a, a period that you go like, I already played this period, or I've already got a game that I like, but I'm like collecting like other systems that aren't quite as good Mm -hmm. or you're buying loads of add-ons for books a system that you don't play like you know you don't play 40k anymore but you're still buying all the codexes and things i would say why bother doing that if if you're not buying if you're not playing a game yeah you don't need to buy all the add-ons for it or if you've never played a game don't buy all the adults for it. I think like I would use like a, a, an analogy for a computer game. Like if you've never played a computer game before, don't buy all the DLC before you've played the main game. Yeah. Because yeah. you might well find by the time you've finished the main game, you've had enough. You don't want the DLC. I, I guess Tom, what I'm feeling at the moment is I've got so many things I've painted and so many games I already have. I want to use what I already have. Like I've painted over lockdown. I've got all this stuff. I I feel like I want to use that before I even think about getting another game. I yeah, Rain and Hell. I just got, but that's different. But I think Rain and Hell though is a good one. Same as like Frostgrave and that sort of thing. Games where you can pick it up and play a new game using figures that you've already got. Yeah, I think is is a really good thing, and I think that can lie in somewhere like. I think there's an awful lot of crossover between players of bolt action and players of chain of command. Mm-hmm. Because all if you're going from bolt action to chain of command, you need a few more figures. But you're like you're, the core of your bolt action army allows you to play chain of command, and like it is a different type of World War Two game, and it gives a different experience. But you're able to like predominantly use the same figures like rain in hell like you painted up these beastmen if mm-hmm. you had like a a beastman fantasy army like you could play rain in hell with your chaos dwarves oh yeah to, to really couldn't you it's like i mean you could use anything yeah like these kind of games that allow you to dip in without a huge investment in figures and time and space 
I think are like they take the slots of like what's your main game or two because I think I would say realistically I know you said having four games I would go less I think you've maybe got two games that I think can be like your main games um, I, I mean yeah I think that I think that's probably true I mean I said for I, I mean I didn't want to be overly harsh <laughs> That's what I said like, before. I, I, if I said I, before, thinking really, you need, you need one that's your main game, and then maybe two, I guess, a couple of secondary, and then leave yourself, leave yourself some room. Yeah, you know? it's like I, I would say, like my main game is bolt action. Mm-hmm. I then have like dalliances with other games for like set periods of time. So yeah. it's like we're playing English Civil War, we're going to play Napoleonics this sort of thing that's that what say it's like my secondary game and then tertiary things are things like war master six mil stuff star yeah. all the all the other things that are like you know oh we'll play a game of this but at no point is it going to like even ever verge into this is my main game territory and i think like the secondary game could be like well we're playing english civil war or whatever might not play as much bolt action because we're playing that and yeah. like i can't ever see myself for the foreseeable future like giving up playing bolt action to just play you know raiding hell week in week out for several years um yeah i mean it might be like for the next two months that's all we'll play yeah be right now but but in a year's time i know i'll, I'll be coming back to bolt action because it's just i've never <laughs> It completes me, <laughs> you know. I find the history and the modelling, and it all just comes together in a really good game. It's kind of like that whole package for me, and I don't get that necessarily the whole thing from from every game. No, it's it's like the system is quite good, if not very good. It allows a really enjoyable. It, it's just a game that it takes all the boxes for me. Yeah, yeah. And like some people don't like World War Two. So they don't like it. Some people don't like tanks, so they don't mm. like it. You know, it's just what is the game that does it for you? And if there I, is, I, that... sorry, carry on. No, and I just think if, if there is that game that does it for you, I think, I think maybe sometimes, especially if you've come from playing forty k, mm-hmm. and then like you you've tried this like a whole smorgasbord of other games, I think there can quite often be a little bit of reticence before like in a way committing to another game yeah and going like, oh i've come out of this like long-term thing with 40k or, or fantasy i don't now want to get like tied down with another game i've been hurt before tom i'm not i'm not ready to commit and i i, I don't feel like i'm being stupid or like over-egging it by using like relationship metaphors i think oh no absolutely not i'm, absolutely not. I'm joking tom it's fine no, it's that. I know you, you were taking a joke, but I, I know literally before we started recording today, I was sort of there was a, a thread on a, a Facebook page of people sort of talking about how they're not enjoying playing 40k anymore. And I was like, yeah, play something different. Exactly. Yeah, I, uh, that's exactly the place I was at. I'm like, why am I still playing this game that I'm not getting as much fun from? Oh, I think I've just answered my own question. Yeah. Um, Whereas if you really enjoy playing 40k, you know, just go, right, I really like playing this game. I want to play it every other week. Yeah. Right. That's going to take up 50% of your gaming time. That's yeah. also equally fine. You know, this is a hobby that is enjoyable for 
the person who's you know it's your hobby it should be enjoyable for you yeah if any parts of it you don't enjoy you know if, if you loathe painting you probably don't want to be playing like mass rank and flank armies that require thousands of figures play like, i mean i think it's as simple as play the thing you're enjoying while you enjoy it yes you know <laughs> while i'm enjoying reign of hell i'm going to play reign of hell until I'm not enjoying it anymore, and then I'm going to play something else that I am enjoying. Yeah. It's it just having a bit of honesty with yourself about, you know, uh, am I enjoying this? What do I want to play? Yeah, and possibly, like, setting yourself some... If you've got a list of games that you really want to play, you know, maybe how we've come up with, like, you came up with the overall list for, like, hobby, like, actually building and painting things, you mm-hmm. could come up with an equivalent oval list for actually playing games. You could go, right, I want to play a pirate game. I want to play Stargrave. I want to play Billion Sons. I want to play these. And, you know, almost like take them off when you've actually got a game in and go, right, I've now played a game of it. It wasn't quite what I was expecting or it was really good or I mm-hmm. want to play more of it. And quite often, I think that is something I have been like wanting to like explore more is that idea of trying right like uh 2019 i tried to get into the habit of playing a game i'd not played each month just sort of see right this is a board game i've never played i've never played dracula's america i i hadn't played Warmaster for 15 years all these things to try and go right try something new and then like right I really like this, didn't really do it for me. And then does that like shuffle around the order of things that are like in your gaming rotation? If all you ever do is playing the games you played, you're only ever going to play the games you played. You're never going to play anything new if you just keep playing the same. It's, it sounds obvious when I say it out loud, but you know, if you don't give yourself the space to try new things, you're not going to discover something that you know you might really like. Yeah. You know, experiment. And- I'm 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 happy to try playing a game like I played Dracula's America. I enjoyed it. Is it going to be my new bolt action? No, but it was fun. Yeah, I, I enjoyed painting up a like a posse for it. I enjoyed doing a bit of reading for it, but in no way was it like this is like you know changing my outlook on gaming. You started wearing a cowboy hat. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, I just I guess it's have a bit of honesty of yourself about what you enjoy and and how much time you have to plan your games and then just try and focus. And I think it's really good that we have as a club, we have our focus internally ourselves to say this is what we're gonna work on. Like I know I've got a bolt action tournament coming up, so I'm focusing on playing bolt action right now. When it's over, it's gonna give me a bit of freedom to try other things, but I wanna be up to you know, up to date personally with the rules. Yeah. After that, and then I also know next year we're, we're going to plan to do some Napoleonics, so I can plan for that, and I can look forward to playing that. It's just, uh, just you know, have a bit of planning and, and be honest about what you enjoy playing. I think that's a brilliant way to end this segment, guys. If you can please, please, please go and give us a five star review on iTunes. Really going to help us get out of there, help us get recognised from other people. I hope you're finding the group um, helps support you in your hobby. And we really want to help other people get that support too. And the best way to do that is a five-star review. Why five-star? Because apparently iTunes considers anything less than five-star, four-star or lower, a negative review.
Who would have thought? I would be happy with four, but we need to get five-star reviews for iTunes. So please, if you can go on uh, and give us a five-star review, that'd be great. And something else you could do is come and join us on the Facebook group. That's the really the best way for us to communicate with you, the hobby support group out there. Um, see your work, comment, help, and most importantly, support you grow and develop in your hobby. Thanks, guys. Happy hobbying. <laughs>